Hi, Christina. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Monique. Thank you for having me. Yes, I appreciate you you being here. I um, got in touch with you. I don't even know how exactly I found you, but I know I read um, or saw a video, a little video on YouTube about your story. I was deeply touched and um, just a little bit of your process of healing. And I was, um, I thought it could be really helpful for our listeners to hear and, and learn from. So I was wondering if you could give us maybe just a little sense of, um, of the trauma that you have in your history. Absolutely. Um, I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And I'd just like to say right off the bat that I'm going to keep the information here as non-triggering as possible because I do want to share some information that I think is helpful. And I know it can be hard to hear uh, if, we've, if we get triggered. Yeah. Um, so I was molested between the ages of 2 and 10. And this happened both inside and outside the home, which uh, are very different dynamics. And uh, there were elements of neglect and elements of torture as well. Mm. Um, now, uh, one of the things that I thought was um, so uh, interesting, but so not uncommon, is that um, these memories were outside of your conscious awareness until you were in your 30s. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? We have this really incredible survival mechanism that, um, you know, especially when we're kids and our brains are still developing, um, when something is completely overwhelming to our nervous system that our um, hippocampus can shut down and what's happening doesn't actually process into historical memory. Yes, right. Um, and I mean, I've heard so many people who have had memories come back in their 30s, 40s, um, and, and people are like, how does that happen? So um, maybe you can uh, talk to us. Uh, I, I mean, I did, I did read, which is another such an interesting thing that you said that um, though your memories were like, they were buried deeply, they still shaped your entire life. And, and you said something like they were the reason for many of your likes and dislikes and your major difficulties, some of your chronic health problems, your divorce, um, all of that without, without having conscious memory yet being shaped by those experiences. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely true. I mean, that kind of deep trauma can can affect so many elements of our of our health and our lives. And for me, it absolutely did. Um, you know, I've had migraines, I've had um, the struggle with gastroesophageal reflux disease, which is GERD. Um, and, you know, I've been through periods of depression, irritability, um, and times when I just feel lethargic or tired and have a kind of mental spaciness um, due to the dissociation. Um, and, you know, in the social aspect, I've um, been through periods where I just have felt like a complete outsider. Um, and, you know, it, I think this kind of trauma can just affect our physical health, mental health, social health, or you know, spiritual health, even. I definitely felt abandoned by God and abandoned by the universe. And um, 
there's just there's just a lot of effects that are present even without the memories and there was kind of a benefit um, in a strange way because once the memories started coming then it um, everything else suddenly made a lot more sense and so it was easier for me to accept because you know we're not taught to um, have an understanding that things can happen in our childhood that we don't remember and that memories come later in life you know that's not something that we learn about in school or uh, it's not even something that's taught in psychology 101 or anything like that and so it's it can be very disconcerting and um, there can be this kind of feeling as, as there certainly was for me of what's happening I'm going crazy like what is going on and because I had all these effects throughout my life it was easier for me to um, go back and fit in these puzzle pieces that I didn't even realize were missing. Hmm. Uh, it was interesting. I read somewhere, maybe it was on your website or I'm not sure, but you said something which was so interesting that um, there was like this marker uh, that when you had this move at age 13, you felt like you were going to have a new life and you actually changed your name. Um, so, how did you, like, again, without having memories, there was still this part of you that was like, I want to forget about the past. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I have a, a very versatile name, Christina, so I actually changed my name a few times. Um, okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, there was definitely, um, for me, a sense of safety and moving to a different state um, and just being in a different situation and wanting to have a new start. Right, right. At 13. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And um, so, you know, I, well, you talked a little bit about how it affected your life, but, um, you know, I, I was saying you were saying that it it shaped um, physically and, and all of these uh, different different ways. Um, you are uh, someone who likes, not likes to, but I know um, you talk about shame a lot and you teach about shame. Um, what do you see as like the connection between shame and trauma? Yeah, um, great question. And I often like to start with definitions, you know, because we have these words um, like shame and trauma that we throw around a lot and aren't necessarily always on the same page as to what exactly precisely they mean. So um, shame, I define as, as this feeling of not being good enough to belong. And that to belong piece is very important because shame is all about our need to belong. And trauma, this kind of psychological trauma, is something that overwhelms our ability to handle it emotionally. You know, so there's two parts to that. There's, you know, this traumatic event. And then there's our own capacity. And, you know, so if you, if you look at those, I, th I think that way of defining trauma is really important because there's, um, you know, one event can be traumatizing for one person and not for another person. You know, the same, mm -hmm. the same thing. And what impacts our ability to handle something emotionally is the support of other people. Social support increases our emotional capacity and our emotional resilience. 
So the connection between shame and trauma is social disconnection. <laughs> you know, they both involve mm-hmm. this deep social disconnection, right? And um, so they, so shame and trauma really go hand in hand. And, you know, what I find especially interesting in our culture is that we have this focus on self-healing. You know, it's this whole genre of um, literature that's focused on self-healing as though we should heal first and then we can belong. Mm-hmm. And that's not actually how it, it doesn't actually work well that way. You know, the, the work of healing trauma is also healing our disconnection. And mm-hmm. um, for abuse survivors, it's incredibly hard to do when we've learned that other people are dangerous. Right. Um, so that's, you know, it's one of the huge challenges that we have as yeah. abuse survivors. That's right. Because we've got this, um, you know, innate, um, you know, um, desire or um, it's more than a desire. It's, it's innate to connect. Um, we're born to connect. And then if we don't, you know, if, if our caregivers are frightening or, you know, we don't feel safe with them, then we just we our nervous systems start to feel like we have to be self-protective. So, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And humans are social animals. <laughs> and um, so it's, it's a, it's an innate need to connect with other people. Yeah. And, you know, also the way our, our fear system works is that we tend to generalize, you know, if somebody has a bad experience with a dog, for example, that person actually can, can start to be terrified of all dogs. Right. You know, there's this generalization that happens and, um, you know, we can go into attachment theory and, and all of these um, uh, models of what human attachment look like. But you know, at its essence, what happens is that we have a um, learned fear response to people. I was 32 when I started getting triggered regularly. And, um, you know, my daughter had actually just turned the age that I had been when I was first molested. So at that point in time, I did not start having flashbacks. I didn't start having any memories, but I started getting triggered um, just very often. You know, suddenly I couldn't even stand for my, my husband at the time to touch my face. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I got a divorce. And at that point in time, I had a break <laughs> for a couple of years before I started having full on flashbacks. You know, I, I got to this point where I was established as a single mom, um, good home, steady job, kid in a good school. And, you know, my life had this sort of rhythm. And often I hear that in other people's stories as well, is that uh, we heal. We start to have things come up when we feel some level of support or stability in our lives. Yeah, or safety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's almost like a compliment when the crap comes up you know (laughs) like here I think Mm. you can handle this now wow um and so I'm just like when when you started having these memories did they um were they like visual was it feelings was it uh what was it like it was terrifying quite honestly Mm. you know I had um Mm -hmm. There, there were visuals, um, occasionally auditory, um, 
and yeah. you know sensations in my body um the emotional experience was very intense and during full-on flashbacks i had no sense of my present day self you know it was as though i were you know i was a kid again basically with no resources mm -hmm. mm. and you know there were times when uh you know in my 30s when my body felt so incredibly tense and I was basically just completely locked up. I felt like you could uh, pull the bed out from under me and I would stay locked into the air in that position. There was a lot of intensity around it. And I felt like I was going crazy, to be honest. So what did you do? Did you, um, did you go, like, did you know to go for help? Did you find a therapist? Like, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely found a therapist. I, I think that's a good, great first step for anyone who's going through a similar kind of thing. And um, I had a therapist, I was lucky enough to find a therapist that I had a good personal rapport with. And uh, I started reading, because that's what I do. You know, analyzing things has always been a survival strategy for me. So um, yeah. it was something that I just jumped right into. And, you know, at the time I was uh, working as a managing editor for a publishing house that specialized in you know, spirituality, emotions, psychology, and neuroscience, uh, meditation. And so I had a lot of uh, resources right there at my fingertips that I could look into. And, you know, I actually um, eventually left that position and started working at a university where I could take psychology classes <laughs> on the side. And, you know, just started learning in earnest. And um, yeah, so I, I, I'm happy to share some of the things that, um, that I found to be most helpful, because it's, it's, it's a scary process, and it can really feel incredibly lonely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. So, what would you like to share? Sure. So, um, you know, first, first, I think, with in terms of a therapist, I think it can be just important to find somebody that you have a personal rapport with, because first and foremost, what you're starting out doing is engaging in a safe relationship. And that is more dependent on the person and your rapport with them than um, what mode of therapy that they have studied. Um, and if I had to choose one mode, I definitely uh, had um, a lot, I felt a lot of benefit from what's called IFS, which is internal family systems therapy. A mm -hmm. um, guy named Dick Schwartz uh, came up with this and it's, it's incredibly helpful. It's kind of, first of all, it's non-pathologizing, which means it tells you that you're not crazy, right? <laughs> it says that your experience is valid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just like every other system in our bodies, um, the mind is also a system. You know, we have a digestive system, we have a mental system. And we even talk like this in our everyday language that, you know, we might say like a part of me uh, wants to stay in bed all day and a part of me knows that I need to get up and do some work or, you know, a part of me wants to eat this entire cake or, you know, a part of me thinks I should have a salad. So, you know, we, we already talk in terms of parts of ourselves. And uh, mm -hmm. the, the IFS gives you 
a framework for understanding how abuse affects that and uh, working with it. So, and you know, another piece that I found incredibly helpful uh, was just writing my story. You know, I, I know that um, for me, I, I like to write, but part of what gets broken from this early childhood trauma, especially when we dissociate and um, don't own our memories, is our, our story. Our story gets broken. And that's really mm -hmm. important because to be human is to be a storyteller. You know, we always, all of us have this kind of story of who we are, where we came from. And um, just starting to write it out and fill in the missing pieces as you go was for me just incredibly helpful. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, I also want to say that so, having self-compassion mm -hmm. <laughs> around the fact that healing happens in circles, you know, it's, um, it's not a straight line. It's not a linear process. Um, you know, I, I have heard from people who get very frustrated because they, they feel like they, they worked through something and then all of a sudden it's back. But if you pay attention, it's usually back in a different way. And, um, you know, things in this universe have a tendency to go in, in circles and healing is just the same. So we, we shouldn't beat ourselves yeah. up if we return to something we thought we were already over. Yes, for yeah. sure. Um, so those were, those are some, some good, um, strategies. Anything else that has been helpful that you found helpful in your healing besides, um, the modality IFS and, um, journaling or writing your story? Absolutely, yeah. So learning to work with emotions, um, especially shame has been incredibly helpful. And I know that you want to go into that some more, but I do want to share that, yeah. um, um, something that's not yet available, but is expected to receive FDA approval in 2023 is MDMA assisted psychotherapy. And I was fortunate enough to be able to, uh, to participate and try this, this therapy. So MDMA is a psychedelic drug and uh, it's done. It's very important to do it in the right context. So this is not just MDMA therapy, it's MDMA assisted psychotherapy. Psychotherapy is still the the, the main noun in that. Um, and it was just, you know, there were, there are a lot of other modalities for healing. And I would say things are generally like help a little bit. MDMA therapy helped me a lot. It really was a game changer for me. Um, and I, I just can't emphasize that enough. And I'm, I'm wish that it would, it could be available for more people sooner. But what this medicine does is it um, allows you to rather effortlessly bring what's not in our conscious awareness in our brain into, um, you know, into the present and to be spoken without fighting ourselves, right? It kind of turns off that fear mechanism and lets really difficult material just be there. And what I found for me is that it helps me sort of empty this container of trauma and have this experience of, you know, felt experience of safety in my body that uh, was completely different than anything I've ever tried. And one of the, um, one of the main benefits that I had from MDMA assisted psychotherapy was that every flash, I still had flashbacks after the first session, but um, 
every flashback that I had after that therapy, there was a part of me that was able to stay present that knew that I had resources. So it really, really is a game changer. And I'm really looking forward to the day when it becomes more accessible. How long did you do it for? Um, So the standard treatment is uh, three sessions. Um, And basically you would, you know, meet with a therapist and um, um, that probably a couple times, um, you know, I'll just, I'll just speak for going forward when it becomes available. What I'd imagine is that you would have a, you know, a normal therapy session or two or three, and then have a medicine session, which um, is an all day thing. It can be, you know, at least six hours and um, which can sound kind of intimidating, but when you bring forward things in such a, a way where you don't have fear around it, it's, um, you know, it's actually a gift to be able to have this dedicated time. One or two people with one or two people helping um, to, uh, to basically help you bird this trauma out of your system. And um, mm-hmm. then you would have an integration session, which um, would be probably a couple days later and maybe a few weeks later and just kind of ongoing because uh, there is ongoing benefit uh, that starts to, I'll say, unravel uh, after the medicine sessions. Okay. So do you feel like it's, I mean, you said that that was a really huge part, um, in your healing. Did you continue with IFS after that? Um, yeah, I've, I've continued with, uh, with therapy. You know, the thing about MDMA sessions is that it helps you kind of empty your container, but learning new skills to prevent your container from getting filled up again in the same way is also Mm -hmm. essential. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of am obsessed with working with emotions and um, developing practices that I think are really helpful for working with emotions. And, you know, shame was the first thing that came up for me to work with. Uh, So that's been a huge part of my focus, but um, I'm also starting to bring more of that same method that I've used with shame to other emotions. Before we get into um, you sharing about um, the shame piece and, 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 um, I know that you have something that you do that that's helpful. I wanted to ask you what were, what is, what has been for you some of the hardest parts of healing? Yeah. So I definitely would have answered this, uh, differently at different times. Yeah. Um, you know, over the years, um, I think what I'm continuing to work with is, um, healing dissociation you know when when yes we dissociate from such a young age uh becomes just a a mental pattern yes and you know just learning to to feel what i'm feeling and to stay present and to reconnect with my ability to be sad to grieve and to play and to feel joy and just to stay present with no matter what my emotional experience is and to listen to it because that is a part of uh, rebuilding self-trust, which is also uh, critical, you know, as a, as a, a child, you know, I couldn't trust myself to take care of myself. Right. We're not, we're not meant to be able to do that as children. 
And, but there is this piece of self-trust that gets broken and takes time to rebuild. And a part of that is just, you know, paying attention moment to moment to my inner experience and listening to my emotions and acting on them if I need to. Yeah. That's why I absolutely love, um, parts work. Um, because, uh, you know, with parts work, we, we learn to connect with the self-trust that you're talking about. We develop a, a trust in ourselves, something we didn't, we didn't have before. And, um, yeah, but I know what you're saying with regards to dissociation, that is extremely, extremely challenging because that's what's happened. It, it has become patterned or habitual. And, and so it can be a real, it can feel like a real, um, almost like a fight because the nervous system is like, it's not safe to stay present. No, no. And it wants to pull you kind of away from the moment. And uh, I, yeah, that's really a hard piece as well to, uh, to heal. So I yeah, would agree. And I, I think, I think what goes hand in hand with that is kind of resurrecting willpower. And, you know, I, I kind of think of the healing process as a self-resurrection process. And I, I really like that word because it's, it's this part of like, you know, I can't, I can't top down fix myself, mm-hmm. which God knows I have tried over the years because, um, that was the only way I could take some power back, right, was to try to fix myself, which is actually kind of a, a violent approach, a self-violent approach. Um, so what the way I like to think about it more is inspiring my heart to want to be here. Mm. So it's this sort of resurrecting willpower within myself. Interesting. Yeah, at first when you said willpower, I was like, that sounds very like think your way there. Just do it, do it. But that's not at all what you're talking about um, when you say that. I love the idea of, um, you know, I don't know how to phrase it, but almost like life, like, like showing yourself that life can be safe, even if for a moment, and it can be good and pleasant. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Something that my heart wants to participate in. (laughs) Yes. I love that. My mind doesn't have to take over. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So um, now we'll get on to a little bit about shame, um, because I know that that's something that you feel very passionate about, healing shame or working with shame. So uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I do a longer workshop process that really takes, takes us through um, a pretty deep um, transformation of shame. Uh, mm-hmm. But there are, there are some elements that I'd love to share. And the first one is to make sure that we add to belong at the end of whatever we define our shame as, right? Because it is about our need to belong. Shame is this feeling of not being good enough to belong. So instead of saying, mm. I am bad, translating your shame as I am bad, say, you know, I'm not good enough to belong. Or, you know, whatever however you articulate your shame, just add that to belong piece at the end. And what does that do? What do you find that does? It makes it not about us. It's about our beautiful need for belonging. And it's a survival need, right? It's a survival instinct. It's a good thing. Um, And so it's, it's creating this sort of, of space around it that, um, 
brings in the beautiful aspect of like, gosh, I have this, I have this beautiful need to belong. It's very human of me. Yeah. And next I would say, look for the shame producing should. So what are you shooting on yourself? You know, if you, if you started out with, I am bad, and then you transformed it to, I'm not good enough to belong. Well, why? You know, this, this part asks us to look at specifically why. And it's important to be able to tease apart shame and not make it this big global thing, because that's just depressing, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, starting with a small piece, there might be a lot of small pieces. So don't feel like you have to capture everything with, with the first thing, but look for a shame producing should. And that reveals the ideal that we're trying to live up to, right? Um, For some people in our culture, it might be, you know, I should be thin, or I should be voluptuous, whatever, whatever the case might be. And, you know, just look for that, that shame producing should that you're putting on yourself. Mm -hmm. And so what happens when you find it? It just helps us to tease apart um, something that might otherwise be global. Okay. So you're you're just starting to tease it apart, and um, you know you can't talk yourself out of an emotion. You're going to fail, right? <laughs> but you can feel yourself. You can feel your way out sometimes. Mm-hmm. And um, so looking for looking for holes in your argument, essentially, feeling okay. for holes in your argument of like, you know, what what is it specifically? And, you know, next we want to make sure that we're like fully like restoring that social context to shame, because again, shame doesn't, if you were the only person on the planet, you wouldn't have anything to be ashamed of, right? There's, there's a key part of shame that is a social context. And so what you can notice here is like, well, where, what group, you know, we all belong to a whole bunch of different groups, right? And you might think you don't, but you know, it could be a group of people at the grocery store. You know, there's, there's all kinds of groups that we belong to, our family. Um, notice a group where you feel that shame and then notice a group where you wouldn't feel that shame. This is super important just to, to notice that it's, it's socially relative, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I hear this from, um, you know, I work with the LGBTQ community and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, this is just very natural for um, often for people in that community, because you can feel like, okay, um, you know, it might be, I feel the shame when I'm with my family, but mm-hmm. I actually don't feel that shame when I'm with my friends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, um, especially for abuse survivors, it can be really hard to think of a group where you wouldn't feel that shame. And that's where you can you can start to look at um, you know you can start to look at a safe place to share it or you know even a therapist that you can imagine having even if you don't have one right now like just imagine a group can be just two people right so imagine a group where you wouldn't feel that shame and next key element is really just to know that you're you're not alone you know you can't heal shame by yourself because you can't meet your need to belong by being all alone but you can start simply and safely you know i think what you're what you're offering 
is a really great service as a coach because it gives people the opportunity to say, um, you know, to have a guide to go through a process because there is a path. There are many paths and, mm-hmm. and just having someone um, as your advocate is just incredibly important, incredibly valuable. And, you know, for people who don't have a therapist or a coach, sometimes you can start even smaller and just find a song, find a song that lets you know that somebody else out there feels the same way that you do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Well, thank you. Yeah. And then the last thing I want to say about shame is don't hate it. Don't hate shame. Shame can be damaging. It can drive people to um, suicide even. It can be really this heavy burden. But it's not, you know, shame is just an emotion. It's kind of like, you know, that the internet can be a force for good or a force for evil, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Shame is is kind of the same way, right? It's um, critical that we learn the adaptive value of shame and to distinguish that from what's not adaptive, what's not helpful, what's not healthy. Because in order to heal, we actually have to be able to feel all of our feelings. And shame is one of them. It's a normal human emotion. And, you know, not everybody is going to be ready for this piece. But I think it's very important just to recognize that um, after unburdening unhealthy shame, that there is a way to view shame in a way that you're not, you're not hating on it. And, you know, one, one way that we can kind of get there is to ask ourselves, you know, what's one thing that I wish someone would be too ashamed to do. And as an abuse survivor, I can think of something pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we don't want to do away with, with shame altogether. I mean, we see with um, sociopaths that, you know, aren't able to feel shame mm-hmm. that no shame is also not healthy, right? The shame is essential for our ability to get along in groups. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And how can we kind of use shame as an opportunity for growth, either for ourselves or for other people? Um, you know, there are times when shame can inspire us to be better and to do better. You know, if we look at our natural, our national history that's coming up around race relations, I can sure think of some things there that um you know shame is kind of warranted right not kind yes, of is yes. absolutely warranted yeah and mm-hmm. shame can inspire us to be better and to do better so we don't want to throw it out uh, we don't want to throw it out completely and the question can kind of turn into this sort of can you shame someone and then give them room for growth give them room to find belonging can you feel shame yourself and give yourself room for growth? And it can be about like kind of backing up to finding our shared values. Okay. And, you know, so I just want to say that there is this very important piece of throwing off the heavy burden of, of shame as an abuse survivor, but down the road, consider you might have a use for it. Okay. Well, thank you, Christina, for um, 
for sharing your story with us and some of um, some things that have been helpful for you. If people want to find out more about your work, how can they how can they reach out to you? I'm on Instagram. I am the shame lady. And I have a couple different websites, but there is a link um, from my Instagram page. Okay, great. Great. Well, thank you, Christina. Okay. Thank you so much, Monique. Trauma recovery coaching is available online, which means that I can work with you no matter where you live or what time zone. There are two ways that we could work together. The first way is through a short-term five-session, five-week individual program with me called An Introduction to Understanding Your Nervous System from a Polyvagal Lens. I've been trained in polyvagal theory and I can help you learn to understand how your nervous system works and how it responds to things and how to begin to show your body how to come back to regulation so you could feel safer and more present. The other option is what I call a deeper dive and that is a 12-week individual weekly program where we meet and we'll also do nervous system regulation work but also other things like attachment work, boundaries, parts work, inner child, and so much more. To find out about my services, you can visit my website at www.cbtsdcoach.com. Mm-hmm.